Welcome to this podcast featuring well-known Bible teacher, Kevin Connor. For more information, visit kevinconnor.org. Now, just uh, before we commence, I've just got a couple of uh, short questions here, not, uh, not totally related to the seminar, but I'll just take a brief moment. So one sort of be on the, um, on the series itself. Um, this is Remo's the second dealing with the rock in Numbers chapter 20. Uh, dear Dr. Connor, wow. <laughs> I told you last night the only place for doctors is sitting at the feet of Jesus and he asks them questions they can't answer. That's where I like to be. Uh, good question though. If Moses had been obedient to the command to speak to the rock instead of striking it, as the book of Numbers records, would Yahweh have used this incident as a significant part of future salvation and eschatological teaching? Uh, the severe punishment handed out to Moses for his rebellion in this matter would tend to suggest that God had other agendas riding on the outcome. Yes, I believe, I believe he did. I'll just say this briefly that um, it might sound crazy, but it's not, because I'm not. Okay. Uh, God had already uh, told Moses to strike the rock at the beginning of the wilderness journey, and that pointed to the rock of ages, Jesus, that was smitten for us on Calvary, and at the end of the 40 years wilderness journey, he told Moses not to strike the rock, but to speak to the rock. And two things, Moses lost his temper. I always feel sorry for him, having the church of the first murmurs. And, um, but Psalm 105, I think it says, Moses spoke unadvisedly with his lips, and because he lost his temper and said, we'll get water out of these rocky rebels. And so, number one, he spoke unadvisedly with his lips. And then number two, this might sound crazy, is not, he actually spoilt a type because Jesus Christ, our rock, had been crucified once. He does not need to be crucified again on any altar, but we speak to him when we're thirsty, say, Lord, rivers of living water. And see, in that picture, rod is a picture of the Father God, please the Lord to bruise him, the smitten rock, rock of ages, cleft for me, the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the basis of the smitten rock, the waters flowed out, the waters of the Holy Spirit. That had already been done at the end of the wilderness journey. We speak to him. He doesn't have to be crucified afresh. All right, so I hope that answers that one. And then this one briefly. Uh, what do, exactly does Matthew 24, 28 uh, mean, please? And uh, this verse uh, says, Where the eagles are gathered together, know where the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. On the carnal natural earthly side, a lot of expositors say that the carcass represents the body of the Jewish nation and that the eagles represent the Roman eagles. So that's a very earthly natural meaning. I think there's a higher meaning and when I've studied the Bible, having studied the Bible on everything concerning eagles and that in the book of Job, somewhere it says about um, where, the, where the body of the lamb is, the young eagles come and they suck up the blood. So in a spiritual sense, can we imagine the Lord Jesus Christ coming the second time in his glorified body and we are likened to eagles. They that wait upon the Lord shall mount up on wings as an eagle. They will renew their strength like the eagle and that all the eagles fly to the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. I like the higher meaning of that. But if you want the carnal, natural mean, that's fine with me. I don't mind both, but I like the higher one because I've got some eagle's wings 
going to fly when Jesus comes. And see, we do this. The, the picture in the Bible, in the book of Job particularly, is that the eagles would gather around the body and blood of a slain lamb. We do that when we have communion, feeding upon the body and blood of the lamb. But if you want the other natural thing, that's okay. All right, let's have a word of prayer and we're going to move into our final session. I really appreciate everybody here and the different ministers, different backgrounds. Let's pray again. Father, here we are again in your presence and uh, we just thank you from the bottom of our hearts, Lord, that we have easy access into your presence through the precious body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, uh, we just gather around your word tonight once again, Lord. Uh, we just remind ourselves of the Apostle John that he just uh, fell with the living creatures and the elders and angels in worship before you and then you opened the book and gave him understanding. Pray, Lord, that you'll open the book to us tonight, give us understanding on this particular air that we're going to share tonight. Bless your word to all of our hearts, Father. We ask in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. I would like you to turn your Bibles tonight to uh, the book of Revelation. And I do want to thank you because, as I said from the beginning of the seminar last night, I realize that uh, some of us come from different backgrounds, traditions, and uh, nobody's uh, shot me yet. <laughs> I do have my bulletproof vest on and everything like that. Uh, so nobody's shot me yet. And uh, if I've said things that you don't uh, agree with, disagree agreeably. As I said last night, I've had a lot to unlearn and to relearn. And all any of us are really concerned about is coming to the truth. We can all say amen to that. And so I don't know it all, but uh, I've had a lot to unlearn and relearn. And uh, I think the Lord has helped me just to discover some keys. Uh, in one of the texts uh, I did out there, and most of us uh, would remember this, how many remember the uh, sort of fable of the six blind men and the elephant? Anybody old enough to remember that? Uh, a couple of, of us from the dark ages. Good. Thank you. And uh, briefly, you know, the, these six blind men got hold of the elephant. And one, el uh, one elephant had one <laughs> hold of a blind man. No. One, <laughs> one blind man had hold of the elephant's ear. And he says, I know what the elephant's like. He says, it's like a big sack. And then the other blind man said, no, you're wrong. And he had hold of the trunk. And he said, I know what the elephant's like. It's like a big hose. And the other blind man said, no, you're both wrong. The elephant's... And he had hold of the tail. He said, it's like a rope. And then the other blind man said, no, you're wrong. Elephant's like he had hold of the leg. He said, it's like a big palm tree. And so the, the last verse ends up like this. And so these men of Hindustan argued loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong. Though all were partly in the right, they were all, all were in the wrong. It depends which part of the elephant you've got. And uh, it may be like that when we stand before the Lord. So, well, we all had a little part of the elephant and thought it was the whole. Uh, no, got to see the whole thing. So hopefully that uh, in the picture I've been giving you, some of the parts have been coming together. How many can say amen to that? And uh, if you don't feel comfortable, just say, oh me. All right, now, I've got a sort of almost impossible subject tonight to do, but uh, we'll try and do an overview of what we want to cover. So first of all, we'll read a uh, passage of Scripture. So turn to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. And we'll just take uh, two or three verses here. And uh, just bear with me because we're just going to sort of have a big overview. 
uh, we're not able to get into too many details on what we want to look at tonight. So uh, the session we're looking at tonight in your notes is the rebuilding of Babylon uh, in relation to Saddam Hussein. So that's what we're looking at tonight. All right, so Revelation chapter 17, I'm reading from uh, New Authorized, uh, verses 1 through to about 5. Then one of these seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying uh, to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits upon on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet-coloured beast, or a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. All right, now let's go way down to verse uh, 18. And here John ends this chapter, though he didn't have chapter divisions. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Then let's go down to um, chapter 18 and a few verses here. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was illuminated with his glory and he cried mightily with a loud voice saying Babylon the great is fallen is fallen double fall and he has become a dwelling place of demons a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hateful bird for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her uh, luxury. Then we'll go way down to um, verse 20, uh, 20, uh, 20, verse 20 of the same chapter. Rejoice over her, uh, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, uh, flu uh, flutists, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in, in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And the voice of, of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For you, your merchants, were the great men of the earth, and by your sorcery all nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. All right, now in your notes that we've got, I've just given you a brief outline. As I said, we're dealing with a very vast subject. So uh, just pray that you'll uh, just sort of flow along with me and we'll try and touch on the high spots. Have a lot of uh, material to cover tonight. All right, on page six and seven... You have uh, a sort of an outline of what I want to cover tonight, and I'm sure that you appreciate it. You should just look at the outline enough. There's uh, plenty of material here, too much, but we'll just touch on the high spots uh, of, uh, of what we've got here. Over the years, um, as I've studied different uh, books of Revelation and so forth, the moment I've come to chapter 17 and chapter 18, uh, various expositors have said different things about this city of Babylon, 
Uh, there are those expositors who have said that the uh, city of Babylon is actually referring to Rome uh, because of the woman sitting on seven hills. Uh, they tell me that Can Canberra is sitting on seven hills too. Uh, but so some expositors hold the fact that uh, the city of Babylon here is not referring to the literal city of Babylon, but referring to Rome, the city of Rome. And then uh, others say it's not referring to any particular literal city, uh, that it's referring just to a Babylonian system and the cities of the nations of the world because of what Babylon represents, Babylon be meaning confusion. And then uh, others hold the view that uh, this is referring to the literal Babylon uh, uh, being rebuilt in the end times. And so um, you have to weigh the facts of the view. So the view I want to present to you tonight is that I personally believe that the Bible teaches us that uh, the literal, actual city of Babylon is going to be rebuilt and is being rebuilt. And uh, when I give you some of the data that I've been collecting over the last uh, 30 years or so, it is really amazing. And I personally believe that this is one of the greatest signs of the end time. So last night we particularly looked at Jerusalem. We're going to touch on that a wee little bit more later on and then uh, uh, particularly at the uh, city of Babylon tonight. So uh, how many have been taught that Babylon here in Revelation refers to Rome? Just sort of give me an indication. How many have been taught that it, it is Jerusalem that becomes spiritually Babylon? Anybody been taught that? Don't, don't be uh, some hand at the back there. How many uh, have been taught that uh, it's literal, actual Babylon or just symbolic? Okay. All right. So how many have been taught nothing? All right. If you haven't been taught nothing, no, if you haven't been taught anything, that's better English, uh, then, then you don't have as much to unlearn as I've had to unlearn. So I want to show you that I believe it's referring to the literal, actual city of Babylon. Now on the top of your notes here, and I'm just going to move pretty, uh, you know, systematically through tonight because I'd like to spend two or three nights on this, but uh, we'll just touch on the high spots. And I want to thank you for being such a patient, intelligent bunch of people. All the intelligent people said, yeah, man. Okay, on the top of your notes here, you've got the rebuilding of Babylon, a sign of the time of the end. The Bible is indeed a tale of two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. So what I've found over the years is this, and over the, over the Bible history, and for my own, um, you know, I have certain fixations, you probably picked up now. I've done the history of Jerusalem right through the total Bible. I've done the history of earthly Jerusalem right through history of the sieges, the Turkish Empire and everything like that, uh, just, just, just to convince myself. Okay, and then I've done the history of Babylon right through the total Bible as well as history right up to uh, where we are today. So uh, there's no doubt indeed that the, the Bible is a tale of two cities. I want you to turn to uh, the last of your notes here, haven't finished, but when we come to the book of Revelation we find that of all the cities now, the Bible speaks about, uh, in Revelation particularly, talks about the cities of the nations fell, but there are two major cities that uh, are in the book of Revelation and they both come into great prominence right through to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go to page 7 on your notes and uh, uh, we'll just look at a couple of scriptures on referring to earthly Jerusalem. Now I'm going to bring it together at the end, but Revelation chapter 11. So let's uh, look at Revelation chapter 11. And in, in uh, conjunction with this, or in connection with this, you might like to make a note of this point you may not like to. Uh, if you sort of get upset with me or anything like that, pray you don't. Pray you're really sanctified. This, I found, is the last reference 
to earthly Jerusalem in the Bible. Now, we touched on Jerusalem last night, some of the issues, and I believe it's going to become a, 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 a very prominent city. It's going to be a hot potato. Or what, what Zechariah says, I'm going to make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all the nations of the earth. And in another verse he says in Zechariah, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup of poison, a cup of trembling, and all the nations of the earth, uh, this, this will be just too hot a city to handle. And we just see the whole of the Middle East conflict, and it's just going to increase. How many have been taught, pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Hands up. Did you know, <laughs> I love catching people, it gives me such a sense of fulfillment. Did you, <laughs> did you know that the same Bible said to pray for the peace of Babylon? How many have been praying for the peace of Babylon lately? Thank you, Kevin. I'd never thought of that. Just read your Bible. Okay. All right. So when you pray for the peace of Jerusalem now, I haven't said yay or nay, so don't exercise your leg muscles and jump to conclusions. This is the last reference to earthly Jerusalem in the Bible. So let's go to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8. And their dead bodies, referring to the two prophets, the two witnesses, whoever they may be, shall lie in the street of the great city. So the great city, listen, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, and there's no mistaking it, where also our Lord was crucified. Where was our Lord crucified? So you think it. When you go to Jerusalem for a misguided tour, and I've been there, I've ministered to the Arabs, I've ministered to the Messianic Jews, had a wonderful time with the Arabs as they came to Christ. Almost had a fisty cuff in the Messianic Jews. <laughs> Smile, you on candid camera. Okay. All right, so when you're going there, you're going to a city which spiritually is Sodom. Sodom had two witnesses and was destroyed by fire and brimstone. You're going to a city which spiritually is Egypt. Egypt had two witnesses and was destroyed by a bunch of plagues. And you see, in the book of Revelation, we have cities that are destroyed by fire and brimstone because we're living in a sodomite society. And we have cities of the nations that are judged by plagues. And those who come out of great tribulations referred to this afternoon, they sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Interesting. Where our Lord was crucified. Let's keep going a little bit. Verse 11. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, as these two prophets, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And listen to, it's the same city. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. So Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem, is headed for a mighty big earthquake. See, these are things that you have to take in. Oh, well, when Jesus comes back, we're all going to go to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Are we? And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and the earthquake, and in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000, and the remnant were scared to death, affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and the third one's coming quickly. All right, now, let's go to some other scriptures. So, very important to note that the last reference to earthly Jerusalem is in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8, and it's spiritually Sodom and Egypt, 
and it's where our Lord was crucified. No doubt about that. Now, let's go to Revelation chapter 9, and these scriptures are on the bottom of your notes here. Revelation chapter 9. And you see, in, in, in interpreting the book of Revelation, this has been one of the principles I've used. If, if the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense or you'll land in the nonsense. That's a pretty good principle. And you see, I've seen so much allegorization and spiritualization doesn't mean this, it, it's spiritually this or allegorize this. Well, Revelation 11, 8 says, spiritually, it's Sodom and Egypt. We've got that. No, but it's literally the city where our Lord was crucified. Now, listen to Revelation chapter 9 and verse 14 and 15. Voice from the golden altar saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. We don't have to spiritualize it away. It's the great river Euphrates. Let's just take it as it is. And uh, in the light of what we're looking at tonight... Uh, let's see if we can do this. Yeah, that might be enough here. But uh, what, we're, what we're looking at tonight, just, just see the whole situation here. Here we have Israel and the conflict between Israel and the Arab and the Middle East uh, situation there, which is going to increase. Uh, or to have Jerusalem up there. Over here we have Iraq and then Baghdad. And it's very interesting in my thinking why America did not bomb Baghdad, which is only about 50 miles away from uh, down here when they were fixing up the Kuwaiti situation. Uh, about, apparently some of what uh, Saddam Hussein has rebuilt was uh, affected, but only 50 miles away. And I think there's some more things in mind than we might realize. And remember the whole problem here with Iran, uh, when Babylon fell many years ago, Persia, overtook Babylon, and Babylon fell under this. So there's always been this century, centuries year of conflict between Babylon and Persia. That's, that's the thing. So just gives you a situation that we're looking at. And here's Israel and Babylon, what Babylon did to Israel, and what Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Saddam Hussein says he's going to do to Israel. So, you know, this gives us a, a bigger picture there. All right, so the river Euphrates. Now, up the top here, you see the river Euphrates, that same river where sin entered in the Garden of Eden because the Garden of Eden was planted along the river Euphrates and other rivers that went out, but the river Euphrates had a very important history in the Bible, still flowing today. All right, and then, so that's verse 14, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Don't have to spiritualize it, allegorize it away. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for, I'm going to add some word here, an exact hour, an exact day, an exact month, and an exact year. So there's a specific year, month, a day, and hour when four angels, because some angels are already in Tartarus, some are already in hell, some angels are still in heaven, some angels are bound. Here there's coming a very significant time when four angels are bound in the river Euphrates and at a given signal, the sixth trumpet, God in the realm of the spirit world releases these angels and they're going to kill a third part of men. Don't have to spiritualize it away. Go to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8. Just showing you, book of Revelation is a tale of two cities. The Bible is. 
tale of two cities. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Chapter 16, Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his vial or his bowl upon the great river Euphrates. And the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits, satanic godhead, unclean, opposite to the Holy Spirit, spirits like frogs. I used to say one time I've got a frog in my throat. But once I found out that they were demons, I quit that one. So three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, the father counterfeit, and out of the mouth of the beast, Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, satanic godhead. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth to the highest powers, the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty, the battle of Armageddon in verse 16. So river Euphrates, unclean spirits. There, chapter 17 and chapter 18 uh, we've already referred to. So that's the picture here. We have a tale of two cities. All right, now let's go to your notes here, and I'm just going to give you a few thoughts on, on here, and uh, just it'll have to be reasonably brief. I want to read some things to you too. All right, letter A. In the uh, Genesis chapter 10 and 11, we have the origin or the foundation of the city of Babylon, and you might like just to take down two or three thoughts you can put here without uh, over overloading details here. We find that uh, in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 that there was a man by the name of Nimrod. Nimrod's name means the rebel, and his number is 13. He is the 13th from Adam. And 13 is the number of rebellion. So here is a man, Nimrod. And these are some of the cities he founded. He founded the city of Babel. He founded the city of Nineveh. He founded the twin cities of Solomon and Gomorrah. So this man is a wicked man. So Nimrod, whose name means the rebel, he's the 13 from Adam. And uh, 13 is the number of rebellion. And he founds these wicked cities. Babylon, or Babel as it was then. Uh, Nineveh. Uh, this capital of Assyria, think up here, capital of Assyria, and then Sodom and Gomorrah, twin cities from which people are known today as Sodomites in the gay pride world. Now, this man says, in contrast to God's word, because God said to mankind, I want you to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth and just spread abroad. So this man defies God and defiance against the word of God. He said, let us... Make, uh, uh, let us build us a city and let us build us a tower that will reach to heaven. And uh, according to you know, the words here, it's the ziggurat. They weren't going to reach heaven, but they were going to build this tower which actually became the religious, uh, the religious thing of, of, of the city of Babylon. Because the counterfeit is, uh, or the counterfeit, the true thing is, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and safe. So Nimrod's building this tower, let us make a name and let us build us a city and let us build us a tower whose top may reach heaven, study of the zodiac and all that religion that was founded in, in there. Well, God said, okay, you've said let us build us a city and let us make us a name 
And God said, let us go down. So us, the Godhead, will go down and we'll fix you guys. So he caused them to speak in tongues and confuse them. So the guy says, hand me a brick. And I don't know what he said in tongue, but maybe, which being interpreted, I don't know. I just, yeah. So the guy looks at him and says, what's wrong with you? And he turns to another guy, says, hand me another brick. And he burst out speaking in tongues. And so everybody, after they sort of found which nation or demon nation, uh, denominate, no, uh, nation, well, you speak my language, you speak my tongue, you come over here. You speak my language, you speak my tongue, and we'll fall all our, the origin of denomination, no, the origin of nations. It's all speaking our little tongue. Some of you will get that, and some of you will get it about midnight tonight. <laughs> so just God, God caused confusion. And, uh, and then scattered people upon the face of the earth. This is a little theory. How many have heard of the, um, uh, the continental drift? I, I personally believe that that is the, the best explanation uh, of what happened because after the Tower of Babel, when God scattered the whole thing, we're told uh, a guy by the name of Peleg, Pegleg or Peleg, if I had a name like that, I'd change it to Kevin. Um, <laughs> so we're told in the names of Peleg, the earth was divided. So have you ever wondered why, how did the kangaroos and the koala bears get to Australia? Did they swim, ride, or what? Or did Noah have them all on the boat and just went around the world for misguided tour and dropped them off in different countries? Eh? Why is it that New Zealand has no snakes, except two-legged ones? Um, that type of thing. So why is it that we don't have lions and tigers and elephants and all this type of thing? So I think when God scattered the nations to their inheritance, and that's an interesting subject. He, he, we're told in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, and Acts 17, 26, that God gave to the nations their inheritance and he blocked them off uh, by the waters and put them in their different continents and actually meant them to stay there for a while because he had a purpose in mind. So that's basically the origin and foundation of Babylon. Now, letter B, just going to your notes. Um, when, when we come to the book of Daniel, we find the rise of Babylon to its glory. We don't have too much history on Babylon, just uh, when uh, Achan stole the Babylonian garment and the, uh, the wedge of gold or silver, whatever it was, just that. But once we come to the book of Daniel, and this is what you see on Babylon, you find the origin of Babylon in Genesis, and Babylon means confusion because, you see, anything that begins in rebellion ends in confusion. So Nimrod was the rebel, and so, exalting himself, let us make us a name. And, and sorry to say this, but it's so true. The danger is that this same spirit gets into dom denominationalism, where we want to make us a name and build us a city and us a tower and ev invite everybody into our little tower. And God says, that's confusion. I mean, we're interested in the name of the Lord. His name is a strong and mighty tower. Everybody said, Amen. So then we have Babylon at its height and glory in Daniel, and then the ultimate of Babylon is found in the book of Revelation. So Genesis, origin, Daniel, height of glory, and then uh, book of Revelation, the ultimate. Now you'll notice there, characteristics in, uh, in, in uh, letter B here. In Daniel chapter 2, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and this is interesting that Saddam Hussein calls himself the modern Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he, he's given a dream from God. Let me just see. I'm looking for something here. Yes, uh, w when you look at uh, Daniel, we see Babylon at its height and glory. 
And uh, in Daniel chapter 2, we find that God came to Nebuchadnezzar and gave him a dream. And it was a dream of the image of a man, uh, image of the world kingdoms. And uh, as, as Daniel interpreted that dream, we find that uh, you know, there, Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. You might like to take down some words here. That's what I'm after. Clarence Larkin, I got this little diagram out of his book. But uh, in, the, in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar received from the Lord, you'll notice that he sees the image of a man, because uh, this is where he sets up his own image there. But uh, it's actually a prophetic picture of world kingdoms. So when the dream is interpreted, deified man. So we have the head of gold, the Babylonian Empire. And then the arms... Uh, the two arms across the chest here, the dual empire of Medo-Persia, so think of Iraq, Iran, this whole thing, Babylon and Persia. Then you have the belly and thighs of brass, the, Gre uh, the Grecian Empire. Then you have the legs of iron, the longest part of the body, uh, representing the Roman Empire. Then you come down to the ten toes, and uh, in the dream he saw the uh, stone cut out the mountain without hands and smote the image not on the head, but on the feet, the ten toes. And when you get to the book of Revelation and Daniel, you'll see world kingdoms, the kingdom of the Antichrist uh, in, uh, in, the, in formation, ten toes. And it is very interesting, as we said last night, with the United States of Europe and Germany being the uh, seat of the ancient Holy Roman Empire. It's just some of the things that are developing very fast here. Whole characteristic of world kingdoms is deification of man. When he sets up his image, thinks that's dumb to have a head of gold as top-heavy, feet of clay and iron that mix and won't mix. It's just God's dream is silly. So he sets up an image of gold. And then deterioration, we go from gold uh, to silver to brass or bronze to iron and iron clay. Devaluation, degeneration, diminution, destruction, and finally disintegration. That's the whole picture that we have in Daniel chapter 2 and 3. And you'll notice that the whole of the thing is stamped with the number 6. Uh, the image is 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and they had 6 kinds of musical instruments as they commanded everybody to bow or burn. It's all over a matter of worship. And then in Daniel chapter 7, as you've got in your notes, God gives Daniel the vision that not of deified man but of beasts, wild beasts. These are animals that are in God's zoo. The lion with eagle's wings, which he interprets to be, to be um, uh, uh, the glory of Babylon and so forth. All right, now, in letter C, I want to read something to you from uh, Dispensational Truth, and you just, just bear with me. Uh, but Clarence Larkin gives probably one of the best uh, definitions of the early city. So just bear with me while I read. I'll Read reasonably fast, and then you can get the tape. All right, Clarence Larkin writes in Dispensational Truth. He says, Babylon was probably the most significant city the world has ever seen, and uh, its fall reveals what a city may become when it forsakes God, and he sends judgment on it. It is so intimately connected with the history of God's people that the Scriptures have much to say about it. A large part of the book of Daniel and the prophecy of Jeremiah relates to it, and is mentioned in 11 other books of the Old Testament and in four of the New Testament. 
that the book of Revelation is a continuation of the book of Daniel is further proven by the fact that the city of Babylon is again spoken of in it and its prominence in the affairs of the world at the end time disclosed and its final destruction foretold. All right, listen to his description. The ancient city of Babylon from the days of Nimrod grew in size and importance century after century until it reached its greatest glory in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar B.C. 604-562. As described by Herodotus, uh, Herodotus, it was an exact square of 15 miles on a side or 60 miles around and was surrounded by a brick wall 87 feet thick and 350 feet high, though probably a mistake, 100 feet being near the height. On the wall were 250 towers and the top of the wall was wide enough to allow six chariots to drive abreast. Outside this wall was a vast ditch surrounding the city, kept filled with water from the river, river Euphrates. And inside the wall, and not far from it, was another wall, not much inferior, but narrower, extending around the city. 25 magnificent avenues, 150 feet wide, ran across the city from north to south. And the same number crossed them at right angles from east to west, making 676 great squares, each nearly three-fifths of a mile on the side. The city was divided into two equal parts by the river Euphrates that flowed diagonally through it and whose banks within the city were walled up and pierced with brazen gates with steps leading down to the river. At the ends of the main avenues, on each side of the city were gates whose leaves were of brass and that shone as they were open or closed in the rising or setting sun like leaves of flame. Near one of these places stood the Tower of Baal or Babel, consisting of eight towers, each 75 feet high, rising one upon another with an outside winding stairway to the summit, which towers, with a chapel on the top, made a height of 660 feet. This chapel contained the most expensive furniture of any place in the world, one golden image alone, 45 feet, high, 45 feet high, was valued at $17.5 million, and the whole of the sacred utensils were reckoned to be worth $200 million. Babylon also contained one of the seven wonders of the world, the famous hanging gardens. These gardens were 400 feet square and were raised in terraces one above the other to the height of 350 feet and were reached by stairways 10 feet wide. The top terrace was covered with large stones on which was laid a bed of rushes, then a thick layer of asphalt, next two courses of brick cemented together and finally places of lead uh, to prevent leakage. The hole was then covered uh, with earth and planted with shrubbery and large trees. The hole had the appearance from a distance of a forest-covered mountain which would be a remarkable sight in the level plain of the Euphrates. These gardens were built by Nebuchadnezzar simply to please his wife. Men, don't, wives, don't nudge your husband. Who came from the mountainous country of Media and who was thus made content with the surroundings. The rest of the city was in its glory and magnificence in keeping with these palaces, palaces, towers and hanging gardens. The character of its inhabitants and its official title is seen in the description of Belshazzar's feast. All right, let's go to letter D. So, splendid description of the city. I'm not apologising, i read it for you just to give you an idea. Okay, now let's turn over to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. And we find uh, in... Uh, uh, I'll give you some chapters in a moment. Isaiah and Jeremiah had both prophesied the fall of Babylon many years before it took place. 50 or 60 years before it took place. I think Isaiah's prophecy was 100 years almost before it took place. So let's look at Daniel chapter 5. So here is Babylon at its height. Ezekiel was in Babylon as a prophet. Daniel was in uh, Babylon as a prophet. Both there. 
at this uh, special time. So let's look at uh, Daniel 5. Now in Daniel 5, we'll just glance over some verses here. Um, let's uh, pick up in verse 1. Belshazzar, uh, let me throw this on the way for I think there's sometimes a connection here because Babylon was in the north and uh, when uh, the house of Judah was taken to Babylon captivity, the prophets always spoke of Babylon and the enemy coming from the north. And it just seems to be something characteristic about north. Uh, we think of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Russia and the Tsars. Interesting ending of names here of the north and their attitude to nation of Israel. So Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. In fact, uh, some of the history, and I'm not sure whether it's Larkin says this, that they had their wives and their concubines and there were thousands and thousands of people in this great banquet. And uh, so Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, and he gets a bit tipsy here, commanded to bring the gold and the silver vessels which his father, Father Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem. So Babylon, Jerusalem, tale of two cities. When Babylon was up, Jerusalem was down. When Jerusalem was up, Babylon was down. Tale of two cities. So they bring these vessels that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which it was at Jerusalem. The king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank to the, in them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold, head of gold, and of silver, arms and breasts of silver, uh, the belly, brass, bronze, iron, legs of iron, wood and of stone, the stone that crushed out the mountain. So, yeah. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the lampstand or the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall and the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Let's stop, just stop there a moment. Now, can you picture this banqueting hall? And I, I, I'm not sure where I've got the details of it somewhere. And how many thousand were attending that banquet? And all of a sudden, this satanic thought comes to Belshazzar's mind. Hey, why don't we get the vessels from the house of God in Jerusalem and let's drink a toast and let's get tipsy and make merry and uh, just worship the gods of gold and silver and bronze and uh, wood and stone uh, against the god. So as he's drinking, getting tipsy there, one of the vessels was the golden lampstand. Those of you who know your Bible know that the golden lampstand is a picture of the church Book of Revelation, no mistake in that. We don't know it in the Old Testament. But when John sees seven lampstands, the Lord Jesus interprets the symbol and says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's a picture of the church in Babylon, letting its light shine in the midst of a Babylonian situation. And in connection with the lampstand and the light shining there in this Babylonian situation, all of a sudden, while they're getting drunk and tipsy there and uh, uh, worshipping idolatrous uh, idols of, of, uh, and the gods of Babylon, all of a sudden, a man's hand comes out of the wall. I mean, can you imagine a man's hand coming out of the wall there? What would we all do? I'd show you how fast to run. All right, okay. And this man's hand comes out of the wall, and I want you to listen because I'm using special words here. And this hand, so the side of the man's hand, over against the golden lampstand because Babylon is about to fall. 
So over against the lampstand, this man's hand begins to write in tongues. Meaning, meaning you tickle the parson. No, meaning, me, meaning you tickle, you fasten. <laughs> you're, not, you're not tickling the parson, that's right. Uh, Perez, Perez. And it writes in tongues. So what does God do? All of a sudden, everybody suddenly gets sober. I mean, just sobered up like this with this golden lampstand and the hand writing there, silent message in unknown tongues, if you please, that has to have an interpretation. So everybody sobers up. So God's going to make foolish the wisdom of Babylon. So they bring in all the wise men of Babylon, the Chaldeans and the magicians and the astrologers and say, interpret this, you guys. Not one of them could do it. Then finally... Daniel's not at the party. He's not, he's, not a, he's not a sipping saint. Praying to God, oh God, how long am I going to be in this Babylon situation? So they get him out of bed. He dresses up. And no fear here. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the man. And the message is, oh, I wish it was to somebody else, but tongues in interpretation. You're weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And you know, history tells us, wow, how many think this is God? Wow. I ask you a question, how many think it's God? History tells us, according to the prophecy, why don't you put down number one there, Isaiah chapter 44 and 45. Just put the chapters down. Isaiah 44 and 45. History tells us that in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, God prophesied concerning Babylon that he would raise up Cyrus, his anointed, and that he would dry up the rivers and leave open the leave gates. And we're told that the Medo-Persian soldiers that night, they had, or over the time, they had diverted the river Euphrates and from flowing across, diagonally across the city of Babylon. And that night, the only night they say in the history of Babylon, they forgot to close the two gates of brass, the two leave gates. And so when the Medo-Persian soldiers came up the diverted riverbed, they came to the gates and found the gates open. And uh, you go down to verse of Daniel chapter 5. Very simple. God doesn't make any fanfare. And we're told in verse 30, in that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. Just like that. So, far as we can gather from history, while Daniel is there interpreting the writing on the wall, tongues interpretation over against the golden lampstand, the Medo-Persian soldiers coming up the diverted riverbed, they came through the two-leaved gates of brass, came up through the Tower of Baal, and that night, Belshazzar was slain. Just like that. How many know God's in charge of the nations? Now and then it's just good for us to remind ourselves, hey, God's got all un everything under control. He's in charge of the nations. He can rise up and pull down whoever he wants to. Number two, just put Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51, 50, 51 and 52. I mean, that's enough on, on prophecies there. But Isaiah and Jeremiah, particularly the prophets who prophesy the downfall and the fall of uh, the great city of Babylon. All right, now, let me just, uh, and I hope this isn't too boring here, let me just go through uh, a little bit of history here, and I'll just touch on high spots. I'd put down general history of Babylon since its fall, 
So I'll just touch on some uh, things here. BC 539, 541, the city of Babylon was captured in BC 541 by Cyrus, who was mentioned in prophecy over 125 years before he was born, which I've given you the chapters. So quietly and quickly was the city taken on the night of Belshazzar's feast by draining the river that flowed through the city and entering by the riverbed, the gates that surmounted the banks, the Babylonian guards had forgotten the lock that night and the city was taken. And some of the inhabitants did not know until the third day that the king had been slain and the city was taken. BC 516, some years after, it revolted against Darius uh, Histaspus, and after a fruitless siege of nearly 20 months, the city was taken by strategy. BC 478, about this time, Xerxes, on his return from Greece, plundered and injured, but did not destroy the great temple of Baal. BC 331, in this year, Alexander the Great approached the city was then, which was then so powerful and flourishing that he made preparations for bringing all his forces into action in case it should offer resistance. But the citizens threw open the gates and, re and received him with acclamations. So he gave out that he'd rebuild the vast temple of the God and kept 10,000 men employed in clearing away the ruins of the foundation. Now why am I reading this? I'm reading some of this because of those expositors, and uh, I think I've been through most of them, who said that Babylon would never ever be rebuilt again and that uh, when it fell, and they quote the prophecies from Isaiah 14, Isaiah 13 and 14, that Babylon would never be inhabited again, nobody would ever take a brick from her to rebuild it and so forth. So they quote those prophecies, but uh, what they haven't followed through is just what the total Bible says. All right, AD 34, we come way down here. Uh, 25 years, Strabo, who died in AD 25, speaks of the latter as being to a great extent deserted. AD 34, on the day of Pentecost, some Jews came from the area of Mesopotamia, where Abraham had been called out of Ur of the Chaldees, and this was the area of Babylon. Many Jews taken in the captivity still remained there, and that in large numbers. AD 60, have I got that in your notes? Yes. Uh, uh, Peter writes... The Apostle Paul says he sends his epistle to the strangers, to Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and then ends up, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, greetings to the church at Babylon. Babylon, people still living there. AD 116, history tells the city was almost deserted about this time. AD 250, history still speaks of a Christian church being there. A.D. 545, about the middle of the 5th century, Theodoret speaks of Babylon as being inhabited only by Jews who had three uni uh, Jewish universities there. And in the last year of the same century, the Babylonian Talmud was issued and recognized as an authority by the Jews of the whole world. A.D. 917, uh, Ibu Henkel mentions Babylon as an insignificant village, but still in existence. A.D. 1100. About this time, it seems to have grown into a town of some importance, for it was then known as the Two Mosques, and shortly after it was enlarged and fortified and received the name of Hilla, meaning rest. This is interesting. In the Department of War of France at Paris, there is seen to the records of valuable surveys and maps made by order of Napoleon I in Babylonia. Among them is a plan for a new city of Babylon. This shows the vast schemes of Napoleon comprehended uh, the rebuilding of the ancient city of Babylon and the making of it as his capital. Now, it just wasn't God's time, as we'll see. 
It wasn't God's time. In AD 1850, the British government sent out a military officer with his command to survey and explore the river Euphrates at the cost of $150,000, which would be a lot of money then. And when the European war broke out, the great English engineer who built the Aswan Dam in Egypt was engaged in making surveys of the Euphrates Valley. The purpose of this was for constructing a series of irrigation canals that would restore the country and make it again the great grain producing country it once was. 1880, AD 1898, Hiller contained about 10,000 inhabitants and was surrounded by fertile lands and abundant date groves stretched along the bank of the river Euphrates. All right, so that's sort of a brief history of that. Now, let's go to our last page. Everybody hanging in there? Hope this isn't too boring, but it just sort of lends way to what we want to finish up on. Now I want you to turn to, uh, this is page uh, 7 on your notes, so we've covered uh, page 6. Now let's turn to um, page 7 on your notes, and I want you to turn over to Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5, let's look at it in your Bible. Zechariah chapter 5. Now remember the prophet Zechariah, he was born in Babylonian captivity and the 70 years Babylonian captivity has come to an end and the Lord gives to this young man a series of prophecies and visions and this is one of the most remarkable visions that he's given, he has a lot of remarkable visions, some say 12 in all, but uh, remarkable visions here. So I want you to go to Zechariah chapter 5. And let me read it a little bit slow, get the picture. Verse 5, Zechariah 5, verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift up your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket, or an ephah, the old translations have that is going forth. And he also said, This is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. What did you think of the woman in Revelation chapter 17, named by Babylon, and then the city in Revelation 18? Then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, and note the language, the more you read your Bible you see significance here, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. Now the woman in Revelation chapter 12 is given the wings of an eagle. But this woman, these two women have the wings of a stork. Stork is an unclean bird. Why, why is it that, you know, when babies are delivered, they always have the stork bringing the baby? Why do they do that? I, I'd like to have an eagle with eagle's wings. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Now here's the important verses. So I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on her base. 
Old Authorized says, and he said to me, to build it a house in the land of Shina. That's where Babylon is. That's where Babylon was, the land of Shina. And it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Now, Babylon has already fallen. And yet Zechariah is getting a vision that somewhere down the line, there's going to be two women. One woman becomes two. And they've got the wings of a stork. This is on contrast to the woman in Revelation 12 that has the wings of an eagle. And they are flying to the land of Shina, ancient area where Babylon was built. And they're going to build a house there and set it upon its own base, its own foundation. Prophecy. Now, years have gone by, and I've just given you a little uh, overrun of history. Now, don't, don't be too bored with this. Over 30 years or so now, as you've got on your notes, as we're sort of coming in for landing soon, letter G, newspaper clippings and reports. Let me just quote some of these, and by the way, full details out in one of the texts there. December the 17th, 1971, and I've got papers on, on my file at home, the Herald, Melbourne, Australia. They want to rebuild Babylon. Baghdad, double uh, AP. The Tower of Babel, biblical source of the world's languages, may soon rise again over the dusty plain, once known as Mesopotamia. The Iraq government is considering plans to rebuild part of the ruins of Babylon, including a 290-foot uh, tower, which probably inspired the writer of the biblical book of Genesis. The ancient city of Babylon... Called Babylon is both ancient Hebrew and modern Arabic, is today a desolate expanse of tumble-down mud-brick walls and stony dunes beside the river Euphrates, 65 miles south of Baghdad. Invitations are being sent out to the world's leading archaeologists, museums and cultural organisations to take part in a conference to discuss ideas for the future of Babylon. May the 11th, 1980, Japanese scholars plan to rebuild the ruined city of Babylon as a research centre and tourist site in Iraq. The Iraqi government already has started restoring the legendary city. Iraq's Babylonian Restoration Group has an international seminar on Babylon. Japanese plans would restore the legendary Tower of Babel and also the uh, Hanging Gardens of Babylon. I'm just skipping some of this. Times on Sunday, February the 22nd, 1987. While Iran and Iraq have been locked in battle for the past four years, Iraq has been pouring resources into its other great obsession, rebuilding the ancient city of Babylon. President Hussein uh, has even brought men from the battlefront to work on. Ten million bricks have been used to reconstruct its more famous features, including the processional way, Nebuchadnezzar's throne room, temples, and a 4,000-seat amphitheater. Now, I'm saying that because some of the teachers on this say no. They quote the prophecy of Isaiah, not a stone will be ever used to build it again. Nobody will ever dwell there. The Arabians are terrified of it. The Arabs are sleep there at night because of superstition and so forth. No, that's only part of it, as we'll see when we conclude. Bangkok Post, September the 14th, 1989. Fortune awaits the engineer who can restore ancient Babylon. Iraq, trying to recover its Babylonian heritage, is offering a reward to anyone who can restore the marvel of one of the world's seven ancient wonders. President Saddam Hussein, who, uh, who gave me this, uh, uh, the, the meaning of his name is Sa'adam, equals Sa'adma, it means accident. And if I'm saying this right, Sa'adam means impactor, attacker, as in an accident, and Hussein means making good. Hmm. Interesting. 
for the 52-year-old president, the city's rebirth is a symbol of resistance to Iran, Iraq's fall in the Gulf War, and formerly Persia, which seized Babylon in BC 539-538. He insists that Babylon will not burn twice. Uh, the Australian, I'm skipping a lot of material here, uh, August the 14th, 1990, ancient legends drive Saddam the Conqueror in his Disneyland style, rebuilding of the ruins of ancient Babylon near Baghdad. Every fourth brick bears the inscription, built in the time of Saddam, whereas in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar in the 6th century BC, only one in a hundred bricks bore a similar proclamation. He wants his empire to stretch from Morocco to India. He said, if we go back to Iraq's history in Babylonian, Assyrian and Chaldean times and throughout the Islamic age, we see that Iraq never lived an ordinary life. Sudan has a lifelong mission for Mesopotamia that he wants to see fulfilled before he dies. The Herald, Melbourne, Australia, 1990, August 16th. And he quotes a little bit of Nostradamus who predicted 400 years ago the conflict of the 20th century would come from the Middle East and the prophecy said the great band and anti-Christian sect of the Muslims shall rise in Iraq and Syria near the Euphrates with an army and will consider the Christian law as its enemy. And so on and so on. Jerusalem Post, September 1st, 1990. The Gulf crisis and the threat it embodies for Israel has convinced many ultra-Orthodox Jews that the Messiah is coming. Thousands of Israelis gathered recently in Tiberias, in northern Israel, around the tomb of a holy man to exorcise the designs of the new Nebuchadnezzar, Saddam Hussein, the king of Babylon, who burned Jerusalem, destroyed Solomon's temple and deported Jews to Mesopotamia in the 6th century. League of Prayer gives a lot more details. Midnight Call. Saddam Hussein sees himself as an incarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. He has his image, and uh, you might like to... Uh, just glance at this. From Nebuchadnezzar to Saddam Hussein, Babylon undergoes a renaissance. Babylon International Festival, October the 22nd, 1987. And then in the coin he's put out, he's put out Nebuchadnezzar had himself that he is great-grand-grand-grand-grandson of Nebuchadnezzar and he is threatened to do to Israel and Jerusalem what, uh, what Nebuchadnezzar did so many years ago. All right, just a couple more. Everybody still awake? Herald Sun, Melbourne, Australia, January the 17th, 1991. The land that is now Iraq has a history of occupations and invasions and Saddam Hussein has gone to extravagant lengths to bask in the reflected glory of his nation's heritage. He promotes himself as heir to the Mesopotamian kings, Sargon the Great and Nebuchadnezzar II. He reconstructed Babylon, fabled in ancient times for its hanging gardens. Toronto Star, Canada, January 22, 1994. Give some more details. And then, um, if, uh, if you can get this book... This is where I got all the latest, uh, latest uh, material, to tell you the truth. Don't mind saying it. The Rise of Babylon by Charles H. Dyer, and he gives some of the speeches, uh, that there are just too many to read, what he is saying and what his leaders are saying. So if you can get hold of this book, it's a little gold mine. As, as far as I know, it's the most up-to-date, latest things, what Saddam Hussein and his soldiers are saying, and some of the pictures of God are out here. So it's called The Rise of Babylon. Sign of the end times, Charles Dyer, and he gives the latest, hottest stuff 
Uh, well worth getting if you can get it. I don't know whether it's still in print or not. You can have a look at it. Don't steal it. Okay. All right. Let me sort of try and bring it all to an end here. So number, number H on your notes here, the modern-day Nebuchadnezzar, Saddam Hussein, latest reports, I'll refer to that book, Rebuilding of Babylon, Sign of the Time of the End. Now what I want to finish on this, uh, I want to finish on a positive note. I hope this hasn't been too boring, but uh, if you like history like I never did, let me see what I can wrap it up. Just down under there, just put down some scriptures here and then I'm going to sort of wrap it up on a positive note. You've been very wonderful. How's our time? Going good. When we go through, these are some chapters I want to give you that I'm drawing this material from. Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51. So those two chapters I think I've already referred to. Isaiah chapter 13 and 14. These are chapters. Isaiah chapter 47. And with Revelation 17 and 18. So they are the most important chapters in the Old Testament and the New Testament concerning Babylon. Jeremiah 50, 51, Isaiah 13, 14, Isaiah 47, Revelation 15, 17. Now, this is what these chapters tell us about Babylon. So if we say, oh well it's already been fulfilled, Babylon's never going to be rebuilt again. What do we do with all this accumulated stuff that I've been getting over 30 years plus what he has and the latest stuff here, plus what uh, Saddam Hussein is doing. All right, number one, try and condense this. Babylon was to be overthrown in these prophecies, overthrown as Sodom and Gomorrah by fire and brimstone. That never happened. Babylon was taken without a shot. The Medo-Persian soldiers came up the diverted river uh, Euphrates bed through the gates of brass that they forgot to to shut that night, came up through the Tower of Babel, and that night, Belshazzar was slain. Solomon Gamal was destroyed by fire and brimstone. Babylon never was, never has been. Number two, Babylon was never, is never to be inhabited. And see, contrary to some of the teaching, Babylon's always had somebody there, either a small village, drew off, and, uh, but there's always been a few people there over all these years. Number three, the Arabs were never to pitch their tents there. Well, some Arabs won't because of superstition over a destroyed city, but certain Arabs do. Number four, the stones of Babylon were never to be used again in building anything. While the whole of the village Hilla was built out of these stones, plus all that Nebuchadnezzar has done now in rebuilding. He's taken the stones and on every, uh, I forget whether it's every fifth or sixth uh, stone, he's put his inscription and this is the area that he's rebuilt so far. Last thing that they hope to get is the hanging gardens, but these are the areas that he's built so far. And you see, this book that I've, I've got here is just not make up because this man says, uh, let me just read this part if you bear with me. The dry, blistering heat was oppressive. That's September in 1987. And the last thing I wanted to do was hike alone along a sandy road and scale a dusty wall. 
but I had travelled from my home in Texas to Babylon, Iraq, and now that I was there, nothing short of an armed guard would stop me from exploring the ruined city. Always fascinated me. Finally, I was alone for the moment in a city that was nearly as old as civilization itself. Perhaps I was standing a few, a few feet from the spot where Alexander the Great died and where Nebuchadnezzar once mused over the greatness of the city he built. Then he goes on how he was invited to this banquet in the Nebuchadnezzar's hall here with thousands of people and he was one of those that was invited and he tells what he saw, what he heard, what he went on. So it's from an eyewitness. Alright, just a couple of other things. Babylon is to be destroyed under the seventh vial or the seventh bowl of wrath. Babylon was to perish when the sun and the moon were darkened. That didn't happen in the fall of Babylon. We see that happening in Revelation. Then we're told that Babylon is to be a great political centre, a great political centre, a great religious world centre, and Babylon is to be destroyed in the battle of Armageddon when Jesus Christ returns the second time. Alright, so let me sort of summarise on this part and then finish up on a more positive note. This, this is what I believe now in the light of all this research I've, I've done and to tell you the truth, all this stuff I've got here, that's pages and pages that I've been doing on research of Babylon, uh, you know, hopefully to convince you. So this is what I believe. I believe that Babylon is a literal city, will be and is being rebuilt. Next, I believe that Babylon, and this is just a, not a prophecy, not a thus saith the Lord, I wouldn't be surprised in some of the events that are happening around the world that um, they're talking about us getting back to our roots. What would be a more suitable place for the United Nations than to go back to the origin of nations rather than New York? Something to think about. Babylon will come to the height of its power in the period of the three and a half years tribulation and you'll find that in the book of Revelation that Babylon and Jerusalem are sort of connected. And this is what I think will happen. I can predict this. That uh, Jerusalem will be the spiritual headquarters and Babylon will be the political and commercial headquarters. That'll be the connection for the Antichrist. Jerusalem and Babylon. But when Jesus comes, Babylon will be totally destroyed at Christ's second coming. And we're told in the scripture I read to you at the beginning, Babylon will sink like a millstone, never to rise again as it has in past history. All right. I want you to turn over to our last couple of scriptures and then I think you've had enough. And I think I have. All right, now let's just bring, and I'd like you to put down two or three of the scriptures which are not on your notes. I'll close my notes off here. I want you to go over to Zechariah and I want you to look at a most important scripture concerning earthly Jerusalem and then what the New Testament writers say and then Babylon, which we've looked at, and then I want us to lift our vision higher. Let's turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Did everybody enjoy a bit of history? 
<laughs> I never did like history at school. Okay, go to Zechariah chapter 12. And I believe this is where present earthly Jerusalem, what we talked about last night is. Zechariah chapter 12 and verses two, uh, 1 to 3. I, I better balance something out too. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord. So the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, says the Lord, which stretches forth the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit within him, spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. New King James or New Authorised, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness, a cup of trembling, unto all the people round about when they will be in the siege both against Judah and Jerusalem. Not only will it be a cup of trembling, a cup of drunkenness, verse 3, and in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone or a very heavy stone for all the peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Now this is Zechariah after he's come out of Babylon captivity. Now, let me qualify some of the things that I've been saying throughout so people don't say, well, you're anti this. Or I'm not anti against anybody. Jew or Gentile, I've got to come to God through Christ. Can we all say amen to that? I believe that the conflict in the Middle East is going to increase and get worse and worse. Like the seals, they increase and intensify, uh, and intensify through the end of the age. So I believe the Middle East conflict is going to increase. There's no peace apart from the King of Peace, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you know what I believe in the pressure that's happening on Israel and with the whole Middle East conflict and it's going to increase on the Jerusalem area? Go down to verse 10. This is what I believe is going to happen. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. And what's going to happen? They will look upon me whom they have pierced. And what are they going to do? They will mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. You only mourn for a son when you've lost him. And they will be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And verse 11, 12, 13 and 14, a great mourning. Verse 12, the land shall mourn. House of David will mourn. House of Nathan, house of Levi, going to mourn. Verse 1 of 13. In that day, there will be a fountain opened in the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. They will have their eyes open to their long-rejected Messiah. But pressure is going to increase. Pressure is coming and going to increase. All right, now, let me give you some scriptures as we sort of wrap it up here. So this is what I see. Last night we looked at the Jerusalem situation. Tonight we looked at Babylon. How, how many of us sort of convinced at least a little bit? Of, you know, at least look at hands up. How many are still unconvinced? Do some research. Buy a book out there. <laughs> My box number six six six. So on the earthly side, I see Jerusalem here, greater conflict, Babylon here. And all that Nebuchadnezzar has threatened to do to Israel, God's going to put the pressure on. I believe there's going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon that nation. They get their eyes open. 
And not, not every individual, but they'll mourn for their long-rejected Christ. I see that. But now let's go to where the New Testament writers are. What city were they looking for? Put down these scriptures, Galatians chapter 4. We're wrapping up now. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 to 30. And listen to what Paul, who came from the city of Jerusalem and lived in the city of Tarsus, he says, Jerusalem, which now is, is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem which is above is free and is the mother of us all. Is that what Paul says? Not Kevin Connor. He's looking at two Jerusalem. The Jerusalem which now is, is in bondage to, to, with her children and answers to Hagar and Ishmael. Think of that. Earthly Jerusalem is Hagar and Ishmael. Corresponds to seed of Abraham after the flesh. Revelation chapter 11, I've already given it to you, verse 8. Jerusalem, where our Lord was crucified, is spiritually Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. And then let's turn for our final scriptures, turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, our final scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 11, chapter 12 and chapter 13, the city of Jerusalem is mentioned three times, but I want you to listen to what city. Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 13, writing to Hebrew believers who were just about to see the earthly Jerusalem destroyed under Prince Titus in AD 70. It's not quite yet destroyed, just a few years before. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10. Or verse 8. By faith Abraham when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tents or tabernacles with Isaac and the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Was Abraham looking for earthly Jerusalem? When Abraham is, comes back with the resurrected and raptured saints, is he going to go to earthly Jerusalem? Oh, this is the city I was looking for. You know, Jerusalem is no longer the holy city. I mean, when I was in Jerusalem a number of years ago, I wasn't purposely doing this, but I'm looking for magazines and things to sort of study a bit more of the history. Well, I come across shelves of pornography on homosexuality and so forth and so forth. But wow, I'm in the holy city of Jerusalem. I'm not looking at this stuff. But it was there. Spiritually, Sodom and Egypt. Keep going. He looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. A city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Go to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they'd been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to, re to return. Remember, 
Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of Mesopotamia, out of Babylon, father of all who believe. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's worth a little hallelujah. Which city? Earthly Jerusalem or what? Okay, Hebrews chapter 12, the next mention of the city. Verse 22, For you have come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God. What's your Bible say? The heavenly Jerusalem. You see, it depends which city we're looking at. The earthly Jerusalem, that's headed for trouble, or the heavenly city. You come to the city of the living God, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Just putting that heavenly in there. If he had just said, city of God, Jerusalem, oh, well, we're all going to Jerusalem in the millennium. No, we're not. City of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Angels, so forth. The last reference, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 14. The last reference to the city. So perhaps we'll read verse 12 to lead into Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Where is that city? Revelation chapter 21 and 22. John sees heaven open. And he said, I saw the city of God, heavenly Jerusalem, holy Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, descending from God out of heaven as a bride adorned for a husband. And Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the saints in this seminar said, hallelujah, that's the city we're looking for. We see what's happening in earthly Jerusalem and Babylon and these two cities and their connection in the last time, but we're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. How many can say amen? amen? Let's all stand. Hallelujah. Well, I hope uh, Kevy's heavy revies have not been too heavy tonight. But, something to think about. Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Why don't you just verbalise your thanks to the Lord and thank the Lord for his word and uh, so many things that we've been able to share. Thank you for being so patient and Good listeners, I want you to weigh these things. I want you to verbalise your thanks just before I pray. We thank you, Lord. We verbalise our thanks to you for your word, Lord, for the exciting times that we're living in, the time of the end. Oh, so many events happening. Father, we just lift our hands to you as an, in an act of surrender to your will and to your word. God, we thank you that you are on the throne. Your throne is settled in heaven and Father, everything's laid out before you from the foundation of the world right through the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for the rest and the confidence and the assurance that your word gives to us in the midst of troublous times, Lord, and the nations of the earth and things that are happening, Father. Lord, our rest and our security is not in ourselves but in you and in your precious word. Father, I just pray that you'll take all that we've been sharing so much, Lord, so inexhaustible, and I just pray that the Holy Spirit will just open our eyes, illuminate uh, that to us further, clarify things that 
need to be clarified, just help us, Father. And once again, I pray, Lord, that not just information of the mind, but formation of our character, Lord, that we'll be worthy citizens, looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, along with our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Bless your people, Lord. Thank you, Father, for all the ministers and all the leaders that have come out. Just every brother and sister that have made the effort to come to this seminar and uh, just pray your blessing upon them. Bless them in their fellowships tomorrow morning. Lord, tomorrow night as we gather for our final session, just pray that the touch of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will just be upon us all, Father. We do love you, Father. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love you, blessed Holy Spirit. We worship you, Father. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We worship you, blessed Holy Spirit, as the eternal Godhead. Oh, thank you for your redemption and redeeming us. In the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We hope you've enjoyed today's teaching. You can also watch this five-part seminar on video at kevinconnor.org forward slash courses.